0: As climate change continues to have a profound impact across the globe and here on Staten Island, the environmental issues highlighted each year on Earth Day are growing more and more pressing
1: in the fight to save the planet, with some arguing that every day should be treated like Earth Day. It was born out of these grassroots advocates and organizations that wanted to push for less pollution, better air quality, better water quality. And that's really where it started. And from there, it became something that sort of mobilized not just the United States, but the planet. In a lot of ways, I mean, there's some major, major pieces of legislation that came out of it. Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, was the start of us acknowledging that there are extremely important elements of our environment that we ha- historically haven't paid attention to and have to pay attention to. And I, I think we're seeing a little bit of that continue today, but it's it's continued in a little bit of a different vein, I think, than it initially started.
0: Welcome to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene, a podcast bringing you an inside look at the biggest stories on Staten Island with the reporters who cover them. I'm your host, Eric Bascom, and this week I'm joined by Staten Island Advance climate reporter, Joseph Ostapiuk, to discuss various environmental projects and initiatives impacting the borough in honor of Earth Day. Thanks for joining me today, Joe. It's always great to have you on the pod. Yep, always fun to be here. Yeah and you know we've got a bunch of different topics to discuss today. I shot you the outline uh, yesterday so you've already kind of given it a look but before we jump into uh, all of that uh, as our resident New York Rangers super fan here at the Advance I was curious kind of how you're feeling about the team
1: as we head into the playoffs. We're one game in right? Yeah so game one is today's Wednesday so for the viewers to know today's Wednesday so obviously we just got past game one on Tuesday Mm -hmm. so I could be looking like a fool in the future but Game one was great for us. Five one win. Um, looked dominant. Um, really just responded well. I'm hoping that we don't have to go through what we went through last year with multiple game sevens and 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 you know for once in, in recent history get through a series without having to go to the end and have some nail biter ending. But um, yeah, it was it was a good start for us. But you know we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, that's
0: kind of how it goes for New York fans, right? Yeah. You got the optimism early on, then you, you kind of see how it plays out as things go. You never want to get too high early on, and, you know, as we've got basketball playoffs right now, I'm a, I'm a Nets fan, and yeah. we're having opposite experiences right now. While you are riding high,
1: uh, we're down 0-2 here, and it's looking like a sweep. Yeah, there's not a lot of optimism in in Netsland, but I, I find it so funny that the Knicks, after game one, there's this such high optimism, mm-hmm. and then you lose game two, and then it's just the immediate opposite. It's Tuesday yeah, they yeah. immediately... After, after one loss. That's
0: often how, how New Yorkers respond to many things, in, <laughs> yeah. including their sports. But uh, l- let's move on to uh, you know the reason that we had you on today, which is to talk about, I figured with Earth Day, you being the climate and environment reporter for us here, it was kind of the perfect opportunity to just kind of take stock of where you're at and some of your extensive reporting that you've done on, on these various topics. So first, before we really uh, get into the specifics, can you tell us just a little bit about
1: you know, what Earth Day is, kind of the history and significance of it. Mm -hmm. Sure. So Earth Day started in 1970. That's 53 years ago now. It, It was born out of these grassroots advocates and organizations that wanted to push for less pollution, better air quality, better water quality. And that's really where it started. And from there, it became something that sort of mobilized not just the United States, but the planet. In a lot of ways, I mean, there's some major, major pieces of legislation that came out of it. Clean Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, Clean Air Act. Um, And it really is just like it it, it was the start of us acknowledging that there are extremely um, important elements of our environment that we historically haven't paid attention to and have to pay attention to. And I, I think we're seeing a little bit of that continue today, but it's it's continued in a little bit of a different vein, I think, than it initially started.
0: My first memories of Earth Day is right? mm-hmm. like when you're a kid and yeah. you're in elementary school and they give you like a little picture of the globe and you, you draw it, it in, <laughs> in, and you're you're adding, you know, you're drawing little like punk yeah. scenes and stuff like that. And so obviously it's great that people are introduced to these types of things some mm-hmm. early on, but um, obviously it, it's much more than, than that, mm-hmm. right? It's, it really is become such an important focal point of the environmental activism that we See really throughout the year. And so I thought that a good place to start for this podcast would be the whole situation with Fresh Kills Park, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm sure some of our listeners, you know, most of them I'm sure are kind of aware of this, but Staten Island was once home to the the world's largest garbage dump. You could see it from space is mm-hmm. always what people kind of use when they talk about it, which is crazy to think about. And then throughout all of these years of really fighting the city to, to get this thing closed, they finally did. And they've done this huge rehabilitation project where mm-hmm. they're now turning what was once really an, an eyesore and a, a detriment to the to this that island ecosystem in many ways into this huge expansive beautiful public park so I was wondering uh, what you can kind of tell us about that project and, and and I believe we're kind of
1: approaching the point where people are going to be able to go visit there soon is that right yeah part of it so I mean Freshkills Landfill had a five-decade-plus reign on Staten Island. It was an eyesore, a nose sore uh, as well for for many people. Uh, it closed in two thousand and one officially, and then in two thousand and eight, seven years later, they announced that there was going to be this thirty-year. It's a long process going to be that's going to have to happen for this place to become you know this public expanse of twenty-two hundred acres. But you're right, there is the twenty-one-acre North Park mm-hmm. um, that's going to be opening first. I was told second quarter of this year, which could be any week at this point. We're now, we're in the second quarter of 2023. So that's gonna be a big day, obviously. It's really just the first step. This this park has a lot of steps to go, but it's the first step of being like this was once this, but now it's it's transitioning to something else. And I, I think it's it is apt to start on this because it's it's obviously such a miraculous project for people who know what the dump used to be. Right. To, to what this park is now and i've i've been in the park multiple times and i mean it's it's an incredible space so just to see that sort of change to see it Mm renaturized and and reclaimed by nature in a lot of ways naturally as well which i'm sure we'll go into um is it's pretty incredible yeah and if i heard you right on the numbers there so the
0: north park that's going to be opening to the public is 21 acres right and the full site is 2200 is that what you said so we're only getting one percent right if i'm doing the math yeah i'm you're you're doing my math guy so only one percent is going to be yeah. uh, be open in this
1: part so w- what does the rest of it look like and what, what kind of work still needs to be done there sure so North Park is a pretty interesting spot in itself I don't want to like diminish that area it's it has a 20 foot bird tower you get incredible views uh, I can't express enough how incredible the view is from North Park you're gonna be able to see parts of Manhattan parts of the creek that that runs through fresh kills it really is a a very unique place. You're gonna see a lot of wildlife. That's that's a big thing too. I mean, the wildlife that's there, and I, I covered this recently, is is really incredible. From even if you're not into birding or something like that, and just being there for a moment, you, you really get a you get, you get transported. You feel like you're not in New York City. I mean, that's that's the easiest way to to say it. But there still needs to be a lot of work done at this point that to allow the full park to be open. And they have this laid out in stages. And I, I covered this I think a couple months ago now, but the stages are going to progress and, you know, we're going to get a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. But I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised by, you know, if if you have a chance to go to North Park, like I said, you don't have to be a bird. You have to be a wildlife photographer. I think you should just go, you know, check it out. And I think that you'll get a different appreciation for this place because while you won't be able to go on all of it, you'll be able to see a lot of it. Right. And when you, you know, when you stand 20 feet above on the observation deck, you're going to get a lot of views that you haven't seen before in New York City
0: yeah and so one last thing and i don't even know if you're going to be able to, to re- yeah, accurately explain this but yeah. like this always happens to me whenever someone's like oh this is a 20 acre park this is 10 acres. like I, I don't really know what an acre is I, I don't know if you really know what an acre is can you give us yeah. maybe like a comparison point for what that 21 acres uh-huh. like how
1: does that like what would be a reference point on staten island or mm-hmm. or something that people would maybe i mean it's it, 20 acres isn't particularly large i mean i think people may know acreage by their homes how much a- acres oh, okay. their homes are so like yeah. a home on staten island doesn't have an acre. That's really? what it was that with. But 20 Acres is a little under a, a half square mile. So not a, okay. it, it's not an incredibly large space. I mean like I said, when you get there you'll realize like, oh Fresh Kills is massive. And and when you drive down the West Shore Expressway, you can you tell know that it's Fresh Fresh uh, Fresh, you'll drive around down the entire West Shore Expressway and realize Fresh Kills is huge. Mm-hmm. Um and even when you're at the mall, when you're at Richmond Avenue, you can see. I mean it it's covered by trees a little bit over there by that bike path, but I mean, it's a large, large area. So you're going to get a, only a little snippet of this, like, like you said, about 1%, but it's, it's going to be a pretty interesting 1%. It sounds like it. And I'm excited
0: for uh, to have the opportunity to go out there and yeah. for some other Staten Islanders to really mm. kind of get an appreciation for, for what they've been doing with that space. And I think especially people who grew up in that neighborhood, going to the dump, we hear these stories about the kids who used to climb on the garbage yeah. piles in the dump, which I don't know. I guess kids were built different back then because <laughs> you could not pay me no, to you. do that, even at my youngest.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's Outlandish. funny. Yeah, it's funny because you say that because I mean, we obviously to see the seagulls that where we see the photos, the archive photos, thousands of seagulls yeah, that, yeah. that would pick up the garbage, and now we're seeing these incredible migrating birds that are making this place their home—ospreys, which are just an awesome-looking bird, hawks—and it's so amazing to see it go from what it was just a few decades ago to what it is now. It's 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 really something. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to it, especially as someone who's kind of uh, picked up birding a bit.
0: And, uh, yeah, listen, we discussed listen, recently. It's, uh, it, that's it's a that's a peaceful hobby. Yeah, it really is. Mm-hmm. It's very relaxing. <laughs> and so, we'll be right back. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is a powerful multipart podcast about Sean Sinisi, a victim of former Penn State football coach Jerry Sandusky, who was arrested ten years ago for numerous child sexual abuse charges. The podcast series is written and hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Sarah Gannam, who takes listeners into the world of addiction rehabilitation, where society can be quick to celebrate the consequences for abusers while not addressing the needs of their victims. Subscribe now to The Mayor of Maple Avenue wherever you get your podcasts let's uh let's move on to another topic which we've actually discussed on the podcast before so i don't want to go too in depth on it and you guys can go back and listen to what we talked about then and and go look at some of joe's previous reporting on this but i want to talk about offshore wind because Mm -hmm. i think that with earth day in mind and and you know renewable energy sources and clean energy that this is really a big thing that we should hit on especially because staten island seems to be uniquely positioned to be a a big player in this industry in new york Mm -hmm. so can you tell us just a little bit about what offshore wind is you know why it's important, and why why Staten Island specifically
1: seems to be getting so involved in this recently. For sure. And you're right. I mean, when you talk about Earth Day, you have to talk about renewable energy. Everybody's really trying to work towards it's weaning off of fossil fuels and infusing more renewable energy. Fossil fuels are, are by far the most significant contributor to greenhouse gases, which heat up the planet, which create all these cascading issues. Offshore wind, really, the way I like to explain it, 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 it's just an evolution of onshore wind, right? People have seen onshore wind turbines. If you're in Sanhaut, you've seen them in Bayonne. They don't really work, but... Yeah. They but <laughs> off- don't move much. They don't. The one in Bayonet actually has a mechanical issue, but the offshore wind is these turbines on a supercharged scale. They're massive. So because they're offshore, they're much, much larger, considerably larger, hundreds of feet across and, and high. And basically how it works is wind... Which is stronger out in the ocean than it is on land, even mm-hmm. pushes these large, large turbines. When they turn, there's a piece inside the turbine called a nacelle that generates energy. The energy gets transferred down the turbine into an underwater cable that goes to one substation in the water, and then it goes onto land and it'll be put into the grid. That's how offshore wind works, basically. I think people have seen onshore wind, and truly really just that magnified. Let's talk a little bit about Senan, and I, I imagine that the fact that we are an
0: island, right, is kind of yeah. the, the main point of why we're we're so involved in this, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, my first two notes here are location and geography. I mean, it's, it's not magic how these turbines get out there. They don't, you know, they're constructed here and they're transported out there. It's obviously, as you can imagine, very difficult to get these things in the ocean as it is. That work is treacherous and difficult and highly skilled work. So where we're located, is extremely important that there's leasing areas that the government is basically giving out to offshore wind developers, that they're gonna be building these wind farms out there. And we happen to be very close to them. So you have to assemble these things. You gotta have the pieces for these things. When you put them on boats that are gonna go out, it it's easiest to have it close to the location where you're going to be putting it. So that's that, it's really as simple as that, to be honest.
0: Right, and we have kind of a couple proposed projects yeah. on Staten Island, right? That would be doing just that. Essentially, they would be almost mm-hmm. manufacturing plants, if I, if I'm understanding it right. That would create these these pieces of the offshore wind. Mm-hmm what are we calling them turbines yeah turbines yeah, yeah, turbines, yeah. and so that we're assembling them here at staging the, facilities yeah staging yeah. facilities mm-hmm. and so can you tell us a little bit about where those are located and, and kind of where they
1: stand in the uh, you know in the development process yeah sure so first we have the arthur kill terminal i'm going to start further south mm-hmm. Arthur kill terminal it's below the outer bridge for people who need a reference point that facility was the first one that sort of popped up it recently received 48 million dollars in funding it got some federal support it's included in some supply chain investment plans and i'm gonna save the viewers from well you know (laughs) what that means but basically as the state is looking to build these these farms out in the ocean these companies also have to invest in areas that create these facilities so they have to support them um and Arthur kill terminals included in them there's two other ones that are actually run by the same company called north point development that are north of them of the arthur kill terminal above the outer bridge one of them is called Staten island marine terminal and then there's another site which we know as Staten islanders as the site where the old lng oil tanks are yeah which i mean if you've driven that at all on Staten island you know what they are and you know where they are and you know how hard it is to get those things down but this group has a plan for that and those two sites which is a little more up in the air at this point, but one, at least one of them are going to be similar to Arthur kill terminal in the sense that it's going to be a staging area. There's, they're going to, get these turbines together so they can go off. The other one could be something like energy storage. It's a little bit up in the air, but yeah. Yeah, and I think that it's really exciting that Staten Island is kind of front and center in this big,
0: something mm-hmm. that's become this big statewide initiative that, yeah. uh, that that New York is really leaning into. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes in the coming years because I imagine it'll take a little bit for this stuff to- Yeah, really I, I mean, it's,
1: it's interesting because it does take some time to get going, but at the same time, the state needs to do this so fast. With the goals that the state's laid out for itself, it's ambitious to say the least, like extremely ambitious. I can't even trust that enough. And to reach that, you have to have these facilities in place. You have to have the workforce in place to do it. You have to have the training in place to, so that workforce knows what they're doing. And then you have to have the money behind it. it Staten Islanders right now, I don't even know if they fully understand where we stand with this, but we're at the precipice of a, of a massive, massive opportunity for the borough, both with jobs and just notoriety in general. I mean we're, we're going to be a central piece of this. So it's just a matter of if that execution does come through, uh, Staten Island is going to be forever changed, especially on the West Shore.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on to something. You know, obviously we all know that Staten Island is referred to as the Borough of Parks, right? We see that on the signs when you come across the bridge. You've been doing this reporting for a while now that I find really interesting about the amount of funding that the Parks Department gets and, and what it was promised and what it actually ended up receiving oftentimes. So correct me if I'm if I'm missing anything here or mm-hmm. if I'm slightly off, but but my understanding is that Mayor Eric Adams, when when he came into office, he had committed to putting one at least one percent of the New York City's total budget, which by the way is the largest municipal budget in the country. Just to be clear, mm-hmm. putting one percent of that budget towards the the Parks Department, right? That hasn't actually happened yet, mm-hmm. from what I understand, in in the subsequent budget negotiations. So you've done some extensive reporting on this in the past. Can you tell us what's been
1: going on there with that situation? And you know how significant would it be if parks were able to actually get that additional funding There's a few important things you said the at least one percent and that's something I'll, i'll get to in a second but i mean this has been a hot button topic for years it's not a new thing but what really sort of revved it up is that as you mentioned as mayor eric adams was campaigning he signed on to something called the percent for parks pledge which basically said that he believes that the parks operations budget, and that's a key thing here, the operations budget of the parks department, Mm -hmm. because it's operations budget and capital Capital budget, which are two separate things. The operations budget would get 1% of the city's overall budget, which as you said, is a massive, massive purse. So far, he was obviously elected in late 2021. He started in 2022. He had a budget cycle through that. He did not come through with his percent for parks budget. In that first year. I asked, says, you know, when are we gonna get there? And I was told that he has at least this was a quote I got at least four years, because obviously that's well, as long as term is right. You know, they're being optimistic that potentially he gets more than that. That didn't really inspire a lot of advocates, you know, when you hear something like that, because when you sign on as as a one of the tenants of your campaign, you take out an op-ed in the daily news, which he did, calling that this is something that should happen, and then you don't do it when the rubber hits the road, it creates a little bit of concern. Now we're in year two budget negotiations are happening right now as week yep and his initial budget was actually 50 million dollars less than the final budget from his first year so that really for a lot of advocates who, who try very very much to work with city hall as much as possible mm-hmm. that was a frustrating thing for them for sure especially considering as you mentioned advocates were calling one percent as the floor mm-hmm. not the ceiling right the floor of the budget so uh, to say that we're in a a unique point. I'm curious where we get to this year if you're asking for my opinion which I don't normally give but I'll give it here unsolicited. Um, I don't think we get there for this year. I could be wrong though. Yeah. But how then the pressure ratchets up each year. Yeah. Because if he doesn't do it by three if he doesn't do it by four I mean then then he just lied.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's really what it comes down to at that exactly. point. But I'm curious in, in your conversations that you've had with some advocates yeah. on this topic, um, that additional funding, what, mm-hmm. what would that be used for? How would that help the New York City
1: Parks Department? Yeah. What would they be able to do that they can't currently? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it would be massive for the for the Parks Department. I mean, the Parks Department manages a lot of land and just simply does not have the workforce to manage it mm-hmm. as a result. I want before I go into exactly what... The money would be for here i want to just go into what some other cities get because we talk about other major cities right chicago has 4.3 percent of its overall budget for its parks department operations wow all right la is at nearly three percent washington dc which is one among the lowest is 1.1 percent so all of those cities put together a substantial amount towards their parks departments. And for good reason, people use parks. They're free locations and the cost to benefit ratio for putting money into parks is incredible. It's one of the best cost rate, better rate ratios you could have in government. It's this health benefits, this mental benefits, exercise benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, so having it maintained is such an incredible resource for the city, specifically for New York city. The majority of the operations budget goes towards this frontline staff. So that would mean more forestry staff to manage the parks, better responses to 311 complaints if there's issues at parks and stuff we've seen some of these conditions get a little bad but it parks department employees is spread thin in a lot of ways for this so it would really improve the workforce and allow it to maintain the areas it has and the areas that are used by so many people so like i said that the cost benefit ratio is is extremely high for it if you're going to put money into something something like this works pretty well for it
0: yeah. And, you know, it's interesting to me that you, you said that the the parks budget uh, in the preliminary uh, budget proposal that Adams put out
1: this year is actually lower than yeah. last year, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, the, the, we know how negotiations work. Yeah. You never give your final number to start. But it was more so a little bit frustrating for, for advocates I spoke to. And I, I wrote a story when it initially came out and there was just concern that. Like, are we working in the right direction? If we fell short last year, we acknowledge we fell short last year, but then we come at this this year and like, don't make a commitment to improve and actually step back. Even if it's $50 million, which in the terms of a whole budget, isn't a whole lot as crazy as that sounds. Yeah, but it it is interesting that it was a step back. You know and, and you wonder how much of that was like a, a dig at it
0: let's move on to something that i guess is actually kind of a crossover of our, mm-hmm. our two beats here this is something that the department of transportation has done for for a number of years now i think maybe we're going on seven years or so and this was actually something that f- the current commissioner Adonis rodriguez had come up with during his time in city council and it's this idea of car free earth day mm-hmm. and so every year on earth day they encourage New Yorkers to leave your car at home, take the bus, take the train, take a bicycle, walk around where you need to go, uh, and just have that day as, as less pollution because less people are using their cars to get around the challenge for that here on Staten Island is that th- this is the most car dependent borough yes. by far and you really can't get around without yeah. a car depending on what you need to do unless you're going to allocate an hour and a half of your day to commuting to, to one location or the other. I mean we were just talking about <laughs> before we started here between having one train line, yeah. no su- connecting subway. Mm-hmm. We we really don't have an opportunity to, to participate in this car free update yes. and, and I imagine that it's something that's that's very frustrating, and I, I just think it's hard for, and, and we'll get to this a little bit later too, for Staten Islanders to be environmentally conscious in their transit mm-hmm. decisions based on the options
1: that we have here. Yeah, I mean, you probably won't find someone who dislikes driving more than I do. I despise drives. If, if I didn't have to drive, I wouldn't, ever, right? But we just don't have that option here on Staten Island. We, we talk about a lot of the changes the city's making. The city's undergoing significant changes, but it often feels like those changes are happening separately from Staten Island that the changes are happening in, in one place and Sun Island just it, it, it's a different borough we don't have the same sort of layout and the so a solution that works in in you know Brooklyn or in Queens it may not work here it often doesn't you know so like things like bike share we've we, we've talked about that before and, and and it's folly here so far and and how difficult that's been so I mean yeah it just really that a lot of the city's solutions don't necessarily just work here and and so far they haven't really so i mean there's a lot of people who i'm sure would love to depend on on other transportation options on Staten island even people on the south shore who are probably the most car dependent on the borough i mean on the north shore you have maybe some slightly more opportunity to be less car dependent yeah close to the ferry but i mean otherwise there's this large large swaths of the borough that you simply could not get around with because there's just The micro-mobility options aren't there to even connect to main transportation options. And those main transportation options aren't exactly expansive on the Burr. I mean, you talked about the one train line. This may be a sacrilege to say, but I've actually never taken the Staten Island Railway. Wow. Never? I mean, I I lived on the West Shore and the North Shore my whole life, so I never really had a need to. But I've never taken the Staten Island Railway. If there was a railway on the North Shore, I would surely take it. I mean, but there isn't. Uh, your
0: Climate Diaries series. And I can't remember if we touched on this the last time that you were on the podcast. I don't think that, I think you were just kind of working on getting it off the ground. So Mm. can you tell us a little bit about what that that
1: series is and and some of the different topics that you've tackled so far? For sure. So, I mean, the idea came from, honestly speaking to a lot of experts over the past few years. A lot of experts are incredibly knowledgeable, but not great communicators. Some of them are, which is terrific, but some of them aren't. And when we had these conversations, I, I realized a lot of my job comes down to making this stuff palatable for is because whether or not they understand it it does matter to them so whether whether or not they understand sea level rise, you know, the mechanisms that drive it, regardless if they understand it or not, it's, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I felt a responsibility to sort of explain some of these complex topics. And some of them get extremely complex. You know, a lot of the science, you know, I don't expect people to read IPCC reports and, and understand what's going on. But when you read them, they're extremely complex, but they have such important ramifications. So I felt like there was a communication barrier there. And I think the way that I wanted to go about it was to try something new here. And you know, I'm lucky our editors trust us in a lot of ways to do a lot of things. And I pitched this, which was basically sort of a first person story where I try to have a conversation with the reader. Uh, I haven't written in first person since like high school. So that was a little bit of a change. But basically, we take some complex topics. I went to things like how did our mild winter affect plants and birds on Sun Island? Because I heard people talking about, oh, I'm seeing like sprouts in the ground earlier. just this because it's mild winter? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and the answer was like, sort of not really, but I mean, you can read the story for that, but other other things too, like like how is climate change affecting tornadoes? And that one's another one where like, it's a complicated topic, but there are answers to it. And I, I spoke to an expert who who walked me through it. I spoke to some people locally uh, about stuff like wildfires as well. And then recently I went to the forum for sustainable future, which was a huge event on Staten Island at Wagner college where we discussed some of the things like offshore wind that are happening, like fresh kills park and really just like trying to bring people a little bit behind the curtain and be like, okay, this is what's going on with this topic and trying to explain in a way that's palatable. I I hope it it at least serves, you know, for people who are interested in the stuff, maybe they're become more interested. And it's really, I geared in my mind to people who aren't interested or like, feel like, uh, I, I don't get it. I don't feel like getting it. I'm trying to make it as conversational as possible. One of the commentaries, I think the one that's done the the best in terms of views as well has been the, the ferry, um, and, and basically how it's inconsistent service is not in line with the city's ambitious climate goals.
0: Yeah, and that's the one I wanted to to get to next. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the ferry one, which is mm-hmm. one that we had talked about before yeah. you wrote it even, you just kind of like floated the idea to me. hey, I'm thinking about this, and mm-hmm. can, can you tell us kind of the the background of, uh, of how this came about for you?
1: Yeah, I'll be honest with you, it started out very selfishly for me. <laughs> um, so i was coming back from a rangers game as we speak about sometimes i'll take the ferry there or i'll take the fast ferry even which i'm an advocate for i like the fast ferry Mm -hmm. um and i'll you know take the shuttle bus to the garden and then obviously after the garden the fast ferry is done so um which is a different gripe but i'll go down take the one to the ferry and then you take the ferry home right I, I, i like it it's cheap and it's usually reliable but i got to the ferry terminal in Whitehall and I had just missed the, I believe it was the 10 o'clock. Um, and then I was like, okay, I'll just take the 10.30, right? And then I get a message over the loudspeaker that the 10.30 is not coming. So now it's the 11. Now, the, the the interesting thing is I was at the game with somebody else who was going to Long Island. Mm-hmm. They left the garden the same time I did. I went down to the ferry and she went to Long Island on the LIRR. She was home. On an hour LIRR ride. And I was still at Whitehall Terminal. Wow. So I could have driven home in about 30 minutes mm-hmm. from from the garden. But instead I was in Whitehall Terminal. And I, I don't mind usually the extra half an hour that it would take to you know take the ferry and stuff. But... To have it not reliable was was extremely frustrating. So that's when I started to think about it. That you know, I, I was looking at it. It was like a Tuesday night or something at eleven o'clock at night. It was like three hundred people, and in, in, in terms, there a lot of people there. Yeah. And the reason why I built up that much because there was no boat. I just thought about okay, well, there's a lot of people here, and obviously because nobody was at the ten thirty. But I'm thinking about how the ferry service has been so inconsistent since COVID, and then even after COVID, after it was okay, it's no longer about being sick work. Uh, you know, people being sick. It's more so about people not being overly motivated <laughs> no, and the staffing issue the, the staffing, staffing is issues. what it comes so to like them. they can't hire you know, enough people to do it so i'm in mean, their um their discussions over their contract which you've covered extensively so i was like how many people and this is a harder metric to follow how many people didn't take the ferry that night mm-hmm. how many people said did what i did I'm not going to take the ferry because I can't rely on it mm-hmm. and I'm not going to know about it until I get to Whitehall because maybe people don't because the only other way you really know is by checking the DOT's Twitter, mm-hmm. which can sometimes do it not so long before, which is right. like another frustrating thing. So that was interesting to me because you obviously want people to take the ferry. The ferry is most effective in terms of environmentally friendly option when more people take it. And it also obviously take cars off the road, which is a whole separate thing. So... That's basically where the inception of that story came from. but I dove into it. I it got, got some interesting stuff about, you know, the efficiency of some of our ferries and how efficient the newer ones are, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. But it obviously is with the undertone that it just simply hasn't been consistent. And that consistency is hurting both Staten Islanders who just want to travel on the ferry and then also the city for in terms of how it wants to reach these goals and talk about things like car free days. I mean, people would take less cars through those tunnels and over those bridges if... The ferry was there
0: yeah i mean it's really as simple as that if you want to encourage people mm-hmm. to use mass transit to use transportation alternatives then you need to make those types of services available and reliable and consistent and mm-hmm. so if that's not the case people are just going to drive their car because it's easier and it's more convenient from them for them and so that, that yeah. that's really just what it boils down to there and and on the the staten island ferry thing real quick i am working on a, a large project, highlighting, uh, as you mentioned, I've been covering these these issues yeah. for, for uh, about three years yeah. now. And so <laughs> there's a lot of different content. We're, we're trying to take a fresh look at it and tackle it from a new angle. And so the readers can can be on the lookout for yeah. uh, but I some, know, ex- some exciting ferry content in the future. But l- let's move on. And this kind of ties back to our conversation that we had about the DOT Free Earth Day and really about the, the Climate Diaries discussion that we just had, too, regarding the ferry. But on Staten Island, something that I've noticed as the transportation reporter is that it it can be difficult in some cases to improve and encourage sustainable transit on Staten Island, in part because many of the residents here, uh, to be frank, and and many of the elected officials as well, uh, kind of oppose those initiatives. So Mm -hmm. we see things like just kind of the general sentiments on Staten Island make it more difficult for the city to actually do anything right because it seems like the public doesn't
1: support it the city is i mean probably looks at it as why why engage in the headache with an island that seems wholly against any sort of sustainable options but I'm, i'm i'm a persistent optimist i think there remains options for the city to work with Staten Island on things regarding sustainable transit, but I think it really has to change the way that it approaches it. I think that they have to do a better job of understanding Staten Island's opposition to a lot of things, how that a sentiment of war on cars is, is pretty entrenched here, mm-hmm. and how the solutions that you're gonna find, if there are any, are gonna have to be done in tandem with the community in a lot different way than than just adding, bi- people in Brooklyn and Queens just want more bike lanes. They, they know what they want, mm-hmm. that's how they have to get it. On Staten Island, it's different, but I think people would be, like you said, with the bike lane on, on Highland, when it's there, I think people are gonna use more of this stuff when yeah. it gets there. I think that if you start to work with them and say, We'll do A, B, and C. I think you'll you'll see uptake, but I think the initial stages have been just so fiery and back and forth that it's it, it becomes debilitating i think to even start a project sometimes. yeah
0: and it, it's really almost like a vicious cycle in yeah. some ways right where it's just like oh staten islanders always have to drive we can't get anywhere unless we drive our car and then the city's like okay well like maybe we'll put in this project so that maybe more people can bike or more people have access to the train station or the or the bus stops and it's like no well we need our cars here on staten yeah. island so you can't put that because then it's going to get in the way of the cars and it's like okay but we're just kind of going in this yeah. big circle mm-hmm, here for sure so, but one thing i want wanted to touch on b- before we go and and this is also something that we've talked about on on previous podcasts and our listeners can definitely go back and and check out this reporting and check yeah. out that podcast but I wanted to talk a bit, little bit about the Staten Island 2100 series that you did last year
1: mm-hmm. and just kind of tell the listeners what that was about and some of kind of the key takeaways that you had from uh, from your reporting the entire series was based on a set of reports that was re- released by the United Nations International Panel of Climate Change IPCC I mentioned them earlier And basically, it was centered on taking some of those projections, some of the latest science uh, of around climate change and sort of localizing it, taking that and some other projections that are around local projections and sort of visualizing it for St. Islanders. I I feel like climate change reporting for in a lot of ways feels Far off for a lot of people. They hear things like ice caps and glaciers, things that they've never seen before, and it doesn't really hit home as hard. So I felt like climate change reporting has to be local and it needs to be localized in a, in a stronger way. And that's what the story, that's what the whole series was centered on making these visualizations of places you know, streets you know, of uh, institutions you know, and showing the threats that they're facing, showing the ways that we're hoping to mitigate those threats and uh showing the questions that we still have and and while also explaining as we explained before some of the science behind that stuff so that was really the the focus of it and and that was my goal for it but i mean you mentioned takeaways i think this is your next question here but Mm -hmm. you know the, the the purpose of the project for me was just to talk to a lot of people i spoke to dozens of experts and and staten islanders as well and some Staten Islanders can be experts in their own right. If you live in Great Kills for a long time, you see changes in Great Kills, for sure. Absolutely. So, I I mean, I think I led off the series with that, with a, a Great Kills resident who has seen water encroached farther and farther since when he was first there to to now and you ask a lot of people on the east shore they have a very impactful relationship with the ocean over there after hurricane sandy mm-hmm. so there's a lot of people over there that are sensitive to those topics but then there's a lot of people who after storm like Ida that was sort of flooding inland it, it didn't you didn't have to be on the coast you just had extreme rainfall flooding that were getting a whole new taste of it and you know when you tell them oh this stuff's gonna ha- this stuff is you know believed to happen more often in the coming decades they're scared of that, and, and and rightfully so. I mean, it creates a lot of issues. It creates dangers for people. We saw people die in New York City because of that extreme flooding. So the takeaway for me was just the level of urgency. There was a level of urgency in, in every expert I spoke to. No expert was like, "Yeah, we can take a, you know, we could take it slow these next ten years." They're more like, "We haven't been taking it fast enough for the last thirty. We have to, you know, do triple time now." So that's that was the big takeaway for me. And I, I hope that that level of urgency came across for people to understand how important it is especially on a on an island you know an island surrounded by water that's that's threatened by a lot of climate change impacts yeah and i think that
0: this really just ties back to what we had just discussed earlier of of taking those those complicated uh scientific topics right and Mm. and putting it and framing it in a way that our our readers will understand and can see in this case with the visualizations that you did with yeah. the project, which were, were really cool. I would highly recommend, again, that anyone who has not seen this uh, go back, read those articles, watch mm-hmm. those videos, and, and you can listen to our uh, full podcast that we did on that series as well. So yeah. thank you so much for joining me
1: today, Joe. It's always a pleasure having you on, and yeah. uh, I hope to have you back on soon. Yeah, thanks for letting me uh, come on and talk about some of the stuff, and I hope people you know read some of the reporting, and if you have questions, reach out. Great. Thank you for listening to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene. If you like what
0: you've heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit silive.com for the latest on all these stories and more. Thank you for supporting local journalism.